0: This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Get Your Guide. No matter where you are going on your next travels, Get Your Guide offers great ways to connect with your destination and make memories with locally vetted, expertly curated experiences. Things just as examples. You could go whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon. You could take a tour of Pike Place Market in Seattle with a chef. There's a London Royal Parks and Palaces tour. All kinds of options wherever you are going. So discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at getyourguide.com. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too.
1: your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at ChoiceHotels.com, where travels come true. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and one percent on anything you buy with your Titanium Apple Card or virtual card number.
2: Visit apple.co/cardcalculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of
0: iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Here is part two of the weird experience of working on unearthed episodes in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, which has just been a, a strange thing. It's, it has not been usual for me to repeatedly refer to current, like the same current event multiple times doing Unearthed. Um, today we have some fun stuff, including edibles and potables, shipwrecks, books and letters, just some other cool stuff too.
1: So normally when Tracy is working on Earth, she winds up finding stuff that seems cool or interesting, but it kind of doesn't really fit into any category. And so those all go into potpourri, and that's where we're starting today. First up, a five-year excavation at a Pictish homestead known as Lair of Glenshe in Scotland has unearthed lots of finds,
0: including a padlock dating back to between 500 and 1000 CE. Uh, There's no more really to discuss with that. I just thought it was cool to have a padlock that was that old. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on to something that is a little more serious. The 2019-2020 bushfire season in Australia was really just devastating. Particularly devastating with immense losses in terms of human and animal life, as well as the general environment and ecology and property, like just on and on. Australia's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have been disproportionately affected by this, with fires completely destroying ancestral homes and cultural sites. Uh, Material losses have included things like council buildings, ceremonial items, and sacred sites. And then all of this has also been happening alongside discussions about Aboriginal land management practices that could have mitigated the fire season had anybody been following them.
1: In a few cases, the fires have unearthed artifacts that might have gone undiscovered, something that we've talked about in previous editions of Unearthed as well, when people found artifacts between the time that a fire destroyed all the vegetation in an area and when the vegetation regrew. One example is a stone-carved boomerang found in a creek bed after the adjacent property was destroyed by fire on New Year's Eve.
0: So it's not totally clear how this boomerang came to be there. They are not common in that particular part of Australia. However, this discovery did raise the point that people returning to their homes and their property after these fires should be alert to the presence of artifacts that have been uncovered by the fire.
1: Switching gears, crews working on Britain's HS2, or High Speed 2, have found what may be the oldest railroad turntable in the world while excavating the former Curzon Street Station. The roundhouse that existed on the site dates back to 1837.
0: So the site is part of a planned intercity terminus for high-speed rail that will be located in Birmingham City Center. So more excavations of this turntable are expected, along with some efforts to figure out whether it's possible for the turntable to be preserved in some way in its current location.
1: Researchers at Riken Nishina Center for Accelerator-Based Science in Japan have found a new way to pull tiny, tiny samples of vermilion, also known as cinnabar, from ancient artifacts. That method is sticky tape! (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> specifically tiny squares of special sulfur-free tapes, since sulfur would contaminate the process, and most sticky tapes on the market actually contain sulfur.
0: So the need for this innovation came about from developments in the analysis techniques that were being used. The research group developed a method that only required one microgram of vermilion, and that's 500 times smaller than the sample sizes that were needed for other methods. So like, that's great it's great to need to take a smaller sample because then you don't have to do nearly as much damage to the object that you're trying to study. However, they didn't actually have a way to collect a sample that was that small. Like it was like, that's a great idea, but how do we get a sample that's that small? (laughs) Uh, And that answer was the sulfur free tape in little, little three millimeter by three millimeter squares to just pull off the tiniest amounts of vermilion pigment from things like pottery and stone tools. I really love the sticky tape story. <laughs> I do too. Um, I was having virtual tea with a friend of mine and she was like, what are you working on right now? And I was like, oh, I'm working on these unearth episodes. She's like, oh, I like this. And I was, she was like, what what's something that's cool that's that you're finding? And like the the sticky tape story was what I immediately launched into. <laughs>
1: Uh, Back in 2014, Whitaker Schroeder, a student at the University of Pennsylvania, was in Mexico looking at archaeological digs and trying to find a topic for his dissertation research. And after a while, he started noticing a street-side carnitas vendor trying to flag him down whenever he drove by. Schroeder thought the vendor was trying to get his attention as a customer, but he was a vegetarian, so he did not stop. But on the last day of his trip, he did... And it turned out that the vendor was not trying to make a sale. He had heard that Schroeder was interested in the Maya, and he wanted to tell him about a friend who had found a stone tablet.
0: It turned out that the rancher had found something significant in his yard. And five years later, after negotiations with him to do the excavation, those excavations began They revealed the capital of the Maya kingdom of Saczi, or White Dog, which was occupied for about a thousand years, starting in 750 BCE or so. Archaeologists had been trying to find the seat of this kingdom since discovering references to it at other sites in 1994. The team
1: unearthed ruins, sculptures, and monuments, one of which is inscribed with descriptions of things like rituals and battles. The team was planning to return to the site in June for further excavations, although the pandemic uh, seems likely to delay that effort.
0: Uh, Moving on to a favorite category, and that's shipwrecks. Locals have known about a wreck about 35 miles off the coast of St. Augustine, Florida, for more than three decades. They nicknamed this wreck the Bear Wreck. I found a lot of references to that being having to do something with uh, debris that had washed up, but I was like, was there a bear on it? Did it look like a bear? I don't know. This January, though, this wreck was finally identified as the SS Cotopaxi, which disappeared in 1925. The Cotopaxi was traveling from Charleston,
1: South Carolina, to Havana, Cuba, carrying a load of coal when it disappeared with 32 people on board. Since then, some people have connected the Cotopaxi to the so-called Bermuda Triangle, which the ship would have passed through on that journey.
0: Biologist and diver Michael Barnett worked on the identification using insurance records, blueprints, and other documents to compare the wreckage to what was known about the Cotopaxi. And then in addition to the news coverage of this in January, the wreck was also covered on the Science Channel series Shipwreck Secrets. Crews have brought up more than
1: 350 artifacts from the wreck of Sir John Franklin's ship, the Erebus, which was found in 2014. And we talked about it on Unearthed that year. The items include things like a hairbrush, kitchen items, wine bottles, and an accordion. These were recovered by Parks Canada underwater archaeologists.
0: So it's been a few years since the ship was found, Uh, There had been some other items brought up from it, but this was the first time that underwater archaeologists have really been able to start working at the site. And mostly that's because of the weather. Uh, The northern location of where the wreck is located means that you can really only dive there for five or six weeks a year at best. If you have bad weather during that five or six weeks, that means it's not safe to go out. It's too bad.
1: A team for Lost 52 Project, which has come up on previous episodes of Unearthed, has found the remains of the USS Stickleback, which sank after accidentally colliding with a U.S. Navy ship on May 28, 1958. The wreck wasn't far from where the collision had taken place, in about 11,000 feet, that's about 3,350 meters, of water.
0: So this collision was accidental. It happened during an anti-submarine warfare exercise. The crew were able to use compressed air to force the water out of the vessel's ballast, and they all escaped to other ships that were in the area before the wreck sank again. For folks who
1: might not recall, the Lost 52 Project has a goal of finding all 52 U.S. submarines that disappeared during World War II, and the four that were lost during the Cold War. As of the stickleback announcement, it had found six of those subs.
0: Uh, Let's have a sponsor break before we move on to... One of the perpetual favorites, which is the edibles and the potables.
1: Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well.
0: And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeart Media, and Intuit QuickBooks.
2: Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other.
0: we've got several things in the world of food and drink to talk about first up researchers think they have figured out how the calusa kingdom in what's now southern florida kept large quantities of fish from going bad in the summer heat while working on large-scale construction projects The kingdom's public works included things like really large buildings and canals, and they would have needed a large labor force to construct, and their diet was largely fish-based. So the trick to keeping such a large supply of perishable food on hand, in very hot weather, was to build large water courts to temporarily hold large numbers of living fish, basically for a few days at a time, close to where the work was actually happening.
1: Some of these water courts were massive, as large as 36,000 square feet, with an oyster shell foundation. And it wasn't just a matter of digging the equivalent of a big rectangular fishbowl. Keeping the fish alive would have required them to account for tides and currents to keep the habitat going as a place where the fish could survive.
0: Based on radiocarbon dating, these water courts were built sometime between 1300 and 1400, and that would have been during the second phase of construction on a royal manor that was huge, large enough for about 2,000 people.
1: Researchers studying ancient pieces of Siberian pottery believe they figured out why pottery was first developed in that part of the world toward the end of the Ice Age. Their work involved pottery pieces that were between 12,000 and 16,000 years old. Based on the lipid residues they found, this pottery was most likely used to process
0: fish, probably salmon. So the team's suggestion is that people developed pottery at this place and time because they were looking for alternate food sources. At some point, people had already migrated away from the coldest, least hospitable parts of what's now Russia, and it would have become increasingly hard for them to find enough food by hunting and gathering. In the words of Professor Oliver Craig, quote, it is interesting that pottery emerges during these very cold periods and not during the comparatively warmer interstadials when forest resources such as game and nuts were more available. Researchers doing similar work in Japan came to the same
1: conclusion about why pottery was developed there at about the same time. But the methods for making pottery were different in these two places, suggesting that two different populations. Each developed pottery for the same reasons, and around the same time, but separately from each other.
0: That separate study, the Japanese study's lead author, Dr. Shinya Shoda, was quoted as saying, quote, we are very pleased with these latest results because they close a major gap in our understanding of why the world's oldest pottery was invented in different parts of Northeast Asia in the late glacial period, and also the contrasting ways in which it was being used by these ancient hunter-gatherers.
1: Researchers in Israel planted 32 Judean date palm seeds, which had been gathered from several archaeological sites. Six of them sprouted.
0: Once that sprouting had happened, researchers gathered up the fragments of the germinated seeds to carbon date them. Two of the seeds went back to between the 1st and 4th centuries BCE. Two were from the mid-2nd century BCE to the 1st century CE, and then two of them were from the 1st or 2nd century CE. The
1: age of the seeds and the characteristics of the plants themselves may shed light on how the population of Judea shifted around 2,000 years ago, as well as how people farmed date trees.
0: Moving on, archaeologists in Tasmania have been excavating the former Picton Road Station that was home to 160 incarcerated workers while they were building a highway in the 19th century. This included the solitary cells that were used for housing, along with things like ceramics, tableware, and tools.
1: There were also a surprising number of alcohol bottles, something that would have been tightly restricted given the fact that the laborers were prisoners. Another dig at the area is scheduled for next year.
0: Also, in one of the funnier moments as I was getting this episode together, I keep up with all of these links to stories throughout the year on, on Pinterest, and what I had pinned for this story was not a whole article. It was apparently someone's accidental publishing error. It had the headline, quote, Fragments Found in a Tasmanian Convict Archaeological Dig at Kempton. And then it had the subhead, Evidence of Many Types of Alcohol Was Found at the Dig. And then that was it. There was no other content. What else do you need to know? <laughs> uh Obviously, the evidence of many types of alcohol was what prompted me to pin the story in the first place, so it was enough for me.
1: (laughs) Speaking of alcohol, archaeologists found 600 beer bottles neatly stacked during an excavation at Scarborough Castle Inn in Leeds. The site had been home to Tetley Brewing, but the bottles, some of which still contain liquid, are from a variety
0: of brewers in the area. Some of this liquid was analyzed and found that it did still contain alcohol but it also contained lead. Lots and lots of lead. It seems as though the brewery's water pipes might have been contaminated, which really isn't all that surprising considering its age and the fact that it had Victorian and uh, Georgian-era plumbing. Possibly the weirdest, creepiest,
1: best headline of this season's Unearthed? 3,000-Year-Old Teeth Solve Pacific Banana Mystery. Uh, Efate is an island in the Pacific Ocean across the Coral Sea from Australia. It is home to an important archaeological site known as Teuma, which is home to a large cemetery from the Neolithic Lapita culture. The cemetery itself is the oldest in the region known as Remote Oceana, and many of its
0: burials are exceptionally well-preserved. So while studying 3,000-year-old skeletons, researchers found microscopic particles of banana and other plants in their dental plaque This is the first evidence that the Lapita people may have brought domesticated plants with them when they first arrived on the island, which had been uninhabited before they got there. That arrival happened about 3,000 years ago. And this may help answer some ongoing questions about how the Lapita people survived as they first settled this island.
1: Getting into more creepy things, which makes me happy. Moving on from food, but continuing with that theme of stuff that was just kind of creepy. Italian anthropologists have concluded that what appeared to be a piece of black rock is really part of the brain of someone who died during the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in the year 79. The substance was glassy, and it was found on the inside of a person's shattered skull.
0: In other Vesuvius news, a cranium found near Pompeii about 100 years ago has reportedly been confirmed as belonging to Pliny the Elder, at least as far as it's possible to, cons- to confirm <laughs> such a thing at this point. Uh, Pliny the Elder was admiral of the Roman Imperial Fleet and went to the area after Vesuvius erupted, both to study what was happening and to try to rescue as many people as possible, but he was killed by poisonous gas from the eruption, according to his nephew, Pliny the Younger.
1: A jawbone was found along with the cranium, and over the course of the work, it became clear that the two bones belonged to different people. Based on isotope analysis, the jawbone belonged to someone of African descent who was in their late 30s, possibly someone enslaved by Pliny the Elder. The skull, on the other hand, belonged to someone older, from the general region of Italy that Pliny the Elder was from.
0: Uh, This was really not as conclusive as headlines made it sound like, because the headlines were like, Pliny the Elder's skull identified, and it's more (laughs) like... Maybe this is a cranium that belonged to somebody from approximately the time and place that Pliny the Elder was from, f- found near Pompeii. Like, <laughs> uh, it's creepy because it's a cranium, but it's also kind of silly. Moving on to some other stuff that I found a little creepy. In 2016, archaeologists found a broken bottle full of nails at a Civil War fortification known as Redoubt 9, and that today is the median of Highway I-64 in part of Virginia. This year, the William and Mary Center for Archaeological Research announced that they believe this bottle is a witch bottle. So witch bottles were meant to ward off evil spirits, something that's been
1: practiced in various ways in different parts of the world throughout history— in this case, it involved burying a bottle full of nails near the hearth in your home, and that practice started in East Anglia in England during the Middle Ages. Archaeologists have found almost 200 witch bottles in Britain, but only a handful in the United States, so this
0: find is relatively rare. Also, um, it could have just been a bottle full of nails. With no supernatural significance because the top of the bottle is broken off. So it's not clear whether it contained any of the other items that were typically placed into witch bottles like nail clippings or locks of hair. It could have just been the container someone was using to hold their nails.
1: My brain wants to start making artisanal witch bottles to sell online. Let's
0: do that. (laughs) We'll
1: just put like cat nail clippings <laughs> I,
0: I increasingly really love all of the things that um I mean not all of the things cuz some of the things that have been done are horrifying but like the the concealing of objects in walls and hearths to try to ward off evil spirits so things like witch bottles and shoes and uh I, they just delight me cuz
1: you don't want that bell witch to come looking for her
0: tooth you don't it freaks me <laughs> out <laughs> That's probably why I thought the banana thing was creepy because it was about teeth. Anyway. um, (laughs) Do you want to have a little break? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm going to recover from these teeth stories and we'll come back in a minute.
1: Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well.
0: And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeart Media, and Intuit QuickBooks.
2: Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&M's has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other.
0: we have just a couple of mummy finds uh, or things related to mummies. Takabuti was a woman who lived in ancient Egypt around 2,600 years ago, whose mummy was bought in the 19th century and then brought to Belfast, Ireland in 1834. Analysis of her mummy has revealed that her cause of death was being stabbed in the back. Uh, Also, researchers confirmed that the mummy's heart is actually still intact and present in the chest cavity.
1: Takabuti is an example of what other cultures' treatment of Egyptian mummies was like in the 19th century. After Takabuti was brought to Belfast, she was publicly unwrapped on January 27th, 1835.
0: That was really just kind of a public spectacle of like, let's gawk at these human remains that we're going to remove from their burial wrappings. Which I find a little horrifying. Uh, In totally different, almost opposite mummy news from a different part of the world, Researchers from the University of Western Ontario have been working on a portable digital x-ray system that could allow more thorough but also non-invasive study of mummies actually in the field. Using x-ray imaging to study mummies is not new. Mosaic
1: x-rays that use multiple images to turn two-dimensional x-rays into a 3D view of a mummy's interior are not new either. However, before this point, this work has usually been done with film, with the team taking that film back home with them and then developing the images and studying them there.
0: It was time-consuming, and it also meant that you were no longer physically able to compare your imaging to, like, the mummies in front of you. This team, on the other hand, is working on an all-digital setup using an X-ray machine the size of a suitcase that was originally made for veterinary use, The images produced are sent directly to a laptop, and they can be viewed immediately. The X-ray machine being used in this work was funded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, and last summer, the team used it in Peru to take more than 800 X-rays in the field over the course of just six days.
1: Moving on, away from mummies and into books and letters... Charlotte Bronte, most well-known for her novel, Jane Eyre, also made tiny, tiny miniature books and magazines when she was a teen. I love this. Her siblings made tiny books like this, too. And when we say we're talking about something tiny, what we mean is something the size of, like, a box of matches. In the case of the one we're about to talk about, it's 35 by 61 millimeters.
0: Tiny! So (laughs) small. Um, I saw some of these at a special exhibition at the Morgan one time a couple of years ago when we were in New York for something podcast related, um, and they they had the books and these little magnifying glasses that you could get a closer. I loved them so much. I loved the whole exhibit so much. It was great. Anyway. One of Charlotte Bronte's creations along these lines was a six-book series called The Young Men's Magazine, and this included original stories, mock advertisements, and other materials. They really were like tiny, tiny little mock-up men's magazines full of original work. Four of the six installments in this series were already part of the collection of the Bronte Parsonage Museum. A fifth has been lost since the 1930s. We're not quite sure where it is. And the sixth came up for auction in the fall of 2019. That led to a fundraising campaign to help the museum buy it. And that campaign was uh, promoted by such notable people as Dame Judi Dench, who's the Bronte Society's honorary president.
1: And this campaign, we are happy to say, was successful. It was announced in February that the newly acquired little book has gone on display at
0: the Parsonage Museum. I really love the fact that Dame Judi Dench is the honorary president of the Bronte Society. Of course. Of course she is. Uh, Moving on. Researchers are studying a 2,000-year-old artifact in Japan to try to figure out whether it contains Japan's oldest known example of writing. Yasuo Yanagida and his colleagues have maintained that this is an inkstone showing Chinese characters that are written on the stone in India ink. India ink is a form of ink made from
1: carbon black, typically in a stick or a cake, which is moistened to produce ink. But it can also describe a liquid ink made from carbon black and suspended in a fluid. India ink, or Indian ink as it is called in the UK, is a little bit of a misnomer. This was first made in China and Japan, and in some places it is actually called Chinese ink.
0: As I was working on this, I was like, I'm sure there are people who know what India ink is, but... I am not clear on the details, even though I've been hearing the term used my entire life. Uh Uh, Other researchers studying this piece, though, have tried to confirm the presence of India ink on the stone through infrared imaging, and they just couldn't confirm that it was there. So there's some dispute going on about this. If it is ultimately confirmed that this really is an example of writing, it would move the first use of writing in Japan to between 200 and 300 years earlier than what's currently known.
1: When Chile occupied Peru during the 1879 to 1884 Pacific War, Chilean forces removed, among other things, thousands of books and manuscripts from Peru's National Library. Chile returned more than 4,500 books, but some of the ones that were taken were sold to private collectors.
0: Yeah, this is also something that is a repatriation, which we're going to talk about more of them in a bit. Uh, one such manuscript is Memories of the Peruvian Monarchy or Outline of the Inca's History by Justo Apu Saharaua Inca. I'm very sorry if I have pronounced that badly. Uh, he was a descendant of Juana Capac, who was the 16th century Inca emperor who we talked about in our previous episode on the Battle of Cajamarca. Uh, This is a beautiful illustrated manuscript detailing the history of the Inca Empire and Spanish conquest in the region. A lot of it is sourced from documents that have not survived until the present day.
1: After more than a decade of negotiation, a private collector agreed to return the manuscript to Peru in November of 2019, and it was publicly shown for the first time earlier this year. It has also been digitized, uh, although Tracy was not able to find the digitization online.
0: Yeah, I found various references to it being available digitally, but um, possibly because I am searching in English and don't know how it might be described um, in Spanish in a searchable way. Uh, I was not able to find it. Uh, as our last um, our last entry into Books and Letters, we're gonna count blueprints as books. Back in 1959, senior draftsman Ken Barnes was working on a fighter jet project in Canada, helping to design the Avro Aero Mark II. When the first Avro Arrow made its debut, it was one of the fastest jets in its class. It had been designed to intercept Soviet aircraft if they were to attack targets in North America. This was a Cold War era aircraft.
1: At the same time, other developments like the intercontinental ballistic missile and satellite technology meant that the Arrow was simultaneously at the top of its class and out of date. Uh, so the government canceled the Mark II project and ordered everyone working on it to destroy all their documents to keep them from falling into Cold War-era enemy hands.
0: Barnes, however, did not do this. And in a story that at this point could have gone very differently, I'm imagining like some heists or something that did not happen, but what if they had? Uh, He kept them safely in his home where they stayed tucked away in a workbench in his basement until they were inherited by his son Gord. The younger Barnes ultimately donated them, and they became part of an exhibit called Touch the Sky, the Story of Avro Canada at the University of Saskatchewan's Diefenbaker Canada Center. We have a couple of
1: repatriations to talk about. The Helen Ladd Thompson Revocable Trust has donated more than 100 items to Hawaii's Ayalani Palace. This is something that a lot of news coverage has framed as being related to the overthrow of the Hawaiian monarchy at the hands of U.S. business interests aided by the military in 1893. That's something that we've talked about on this show. In the words of CNN's headline, for example, quote, thousands of artifacts were taken when Hawaii's monarchy was overthrown. Now some have returned home to Iolani Palace."
0: It is absolutely true that thousands of artifacts, pieces of artwork, and other items were seized and auctioned off after the Hawaiian monarchy was overthrown, and that many of these pieces have never been recovered or returned. But this particular donation has a little bit different backstory.
1: These items had originally belonged to Anton and Emily Rosa. Anton was the son of a Hawaiian mother and a father of Portuguese descent. He was a judge and King Kalakaua appointed him as attorney general. After that, Rosa served as Kalakaua's vice chamberlain and he was part of Queen Liliuokalani's privy council.
0: Rosa died in 1898 at the age of 43, and in obituaries, his politics were described as nationalist and in opposition to the republic that was established after U.S. interests overthrew the Hawaiian monarchy.
1: These items, which were probably given to the Rosa family as gifts, were then passed down to their descendants. Then Helen Ladd-Thompson, Rosa's granddaughter, died in Honolulu on June 23rd, 2018, which ultimately led to those items being donated to the Iolani Palace.
0: The headlines sort of made it sound like these were things that... Nefarious people had looted from the palace and decided to return. But, like, this is a, f- a family who had connections with the monarchy's personal items that they have donated now. Uh, in other news, uh, Scotland has returned the remains of a Beothic couple 191 years after those remains were taken from their grave in what's now Newfoundland by explorer William Cormack. This return followed years of discussion with the Canadian government and with Indigenous leaders. These remains belonged to Nono Sabaset and uh, Demazduit. I'm really sorry if I have done that badly. I tried to get pronunciations and failed. DeMazduet was captured by a European fur trader in 1819, and her husband was killed trying to rescue her. She died of tuberculosis the following year.
1: As of March, the remains were being held at the Room's Archive and Museum in St. John's as Indigenous leaders from Newfoundland and Labrador discussed how and where to rebury them to ensure that they would not be disturbed again.
0: Initially, Scottish authorities had refused to return these remains because the request had not been made by a direct descendant. This is one of those situations where the Beothic Nation as a nation was destroyed back in the 19th century. So, the efforts to have the remains repatriated has been a collaborative effort among multiple Indigenous peoples in Canada.
1: A pipe tomahawk that George Washington gave to Seneca leader Cornplanter in 1792 has been returned to the Seneca Nation. A Seneca diplomat had donated the tomahawk to the New York State Museum in 1851, but it had been lost or stolen from the museum about 100 years later. It was returned to the museum by an anonymous person in 2018. The formal return of the pipe took place in Salamanca, New York in January.
0: And now we are going to move on and finish off this installment of Unearthed with something that a lot of people's social media shares blamed for the state of the world right now. Um, Which, since as we've said earlier, this episode is coming out in two weeks, who knows what the state of the world will be at that point. 30 lead curse tablets were found in the main cemetery of ancient Athens down at the bottom of a well. This well is known as b 34 It's one of more than 40 known wells in the cemetery, and it dates back to the 4th century B.C.E. It was common
1: to bury these types of tablets in a person's tomb, under the idea that the person could carry the message with them to the underworld. And wells were seen as another connection to underworld deities this use of wells as kind of a curse tablet mailbox increased after Athenian law banned the burial of curses in tombs as part of laws governing the tombs' overall management.
0: So these curse tablets would have been considered the Black Arts, and the Black Arts were not looked upon very favorably in Athens. So this well, which was the water source for a public bath, was probably just a convenient place for people to try to throw their curses in surreptitiously.
1: This kind of reminds me of people trying to scatter ashes on Disney rides. Um, (laughs) uh, Some of the other items found in the well, which had to be pumped free of water before the excavation could begin, were bronze coins, cooking pots, drinking vessels, peach pits, and talus bones used for dice games. This wasn't all just littering. Some of these items would have been thrown in as an offering to the water nymph
0: believed to be tied to the well. So this story uh, came out, a little bit earlier in the year, but it circulated a lot. I saw it uh, around numerous times in the early days, just after the World Health Organization had declared a pandemic. And that led to people making various quips about how we needed to throw the curses back in. Uh, Just to be clear though, they were removed when the well was excavated for the first time back in 2016. So, and also probably they had already done their curse work. If you believe in such a thing, since the whole point was for them, their messages, to be retrieved by underworld deities down at the bottom of the well. Right.
1: It's a return to sender situation. <laughs> it is. Because we, um, we don't want your curses.
0: No, no. So, yeah, that is our Unearthed for the springtime of 2020. I'm wildly curious how this goes in summer. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, like, uh, a lot of universities are are only doing online instruction, um, or I, like, have, like, told students not to return to campus, so, like, uh, uh, the world of university-based work is very different. Simultaneously, though, my spouse works for a university as a librarian, and he has been incredibly busy working at home, As faculty have wanted a lot of research help for stuff that is related to COVID nineteen in some way, so um, there's it it could go so many different ways. Like I I imagine, a lot of um, field work is probably canceled or or postponed. A lot of conferences where these kinds of things make their first public appearance, like those, a lot of them have either been uh, canceled or postponed or moved to an all online format. It remains to be seen. what we'll have to report in July.
1: Yeah, I imagine there could be, like, analysis and, um, you know, putting together of papers during this time, but we'll see.
0: We'll see. Well, and based on our own experience, it's a little hard to concentrate.
1: <laughs> that it is.
0: I mean, we <laughs> we have a lot to be thankful for, Holly and I, and our work, but also uh, it's been kind of, a like, just an emotional and and mental struggle.
1: Yeah, I find myself, like, in the middle of research and being like, none of this makes sense together. How do I make a narrative structure? And then I realize, like, two hours have passed and I've just been essentially staring at a cat. Same. Like, I'm just like, I don't know what happened here, but I got to make up for lost time.
0: Yeah. Um, Do you have a little listener mail to take us out? I do have listener mail. It is from someone who asked us to please leave their name off if we read it. So I'm doing that. Uh, They write... I would just like to thank you, ladies, for your special coronavirus episodes. Podcasters may not be doctors or laboratory technicians or truck drivers and supermarket shelf sackers, but you're still doing an important job of keeping the spirits up of people stuck at home. My wife and I are in Australia and are both working from home. I work for the railways, and most other railroaders still have to go to work to keep the trains moving. We're running more intermodal general freight trains than ever. They are as long as they can be to fit into passing loops, also known as sidings, but are not as heavy as they could be. Things like dried pasta and toilet paper take up a lot of space but are not very heavy. The people who load trains are used to seeing a peak period in the lead up to Christmas, but right now they're seeing a peak which doesn't end. One of the biggest problems I have is having to keep picking the cats off the laptop. We have three cats and a dog. I sent out this photo to my workmates that said my cat, Trim, takes after his namesake. The original Trim is how Australia got its name. Matthew Flinders had just finished the first complete map of Australia, and Trim went to sleep in the middle of it. He wanted to write Terra Australia on it, which is Latin for Southern Land, but he abbreviated it to Australia so as not to wake Trim. I then had to explain to one of my my workmates that it wasn't true, British Naval Office Matthew Flinders was the first person to circumnavigate Australia and to properly map it. He did bring his cat, a ship's cat, called Trim, with him. Trim was known for mischief like sprawling out on the chart table when an officer had to do the navigation, but the name Australia had already been coined. Flinders chose to use it and made it popular. On a lighter note after your train wrecks episode, you might like to hear about the tea and sugar. This was a shopping mall on a train. There used to be a whole series of settlements next to the railway across the Nullarbor Desert where the track mountaineers lived with their family. More or less every week from when the line opened in 1917 until 1996, this train ran across the line bringing them supplies. Tea and sugar were the most famous supplies it carried, hence the name. One carriage had a grocery store, another carriage had a butcher shop, and another carriage had a bank branch. Nurses would often ride the train to check on people's health, and movie projectors were often carried. At Christmas, Father Christmas, also known as Santa Claus, would ride the train— And the train finally stopped running when modern technology meant people no longer needed to live in such remote settlements. Things like concrete sleepers on ties, which are not eaten by termites, did not need to be replaced as often. Modern four-wheel drive cars meant track workers and their families could live in towns and then drive out to where they needed to work, spending a few nights in bunkhouses on the line. Thanks again. Thank you so much, anonymous listener, for... Uh these two charming stories about Trim and about the tea and sugar I love both of them. <laughs> <laughs> um as soon as I heard about the tea and sugar I was like can we do an episode about that? I
1: did a similar thing.
0: Um and then I was like can I do an episode about this and other cool trains as like a six impossible episodes and I haven't quite pulled together something that might be a thing to that can happen in the future but I did not immediately figure out what to do with it. But anyway, it's such a great story. Thank you so much for sending us this email. Uh, Again, we hope people are weathering things as best as possible. Uh, And thanks for listening to our show. If you would like to write to us, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. And then we're all over social media at Mist in History, which is where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, and anywhere else you get your podcast. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Zigazoo has made me zigzag.